You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com, and joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? Do you think people will notice a slight pause there in the introduction where I almost forgot where I work? I don't think anybody will notice it. Because it's probably going to have the background music under it. Yeah, and just... it's just programmed in their brains right now. They're not even listening to this part. They're just skipping ahead. You'd be surprised. I oftentimes have people hit me up on Twitter to discuss the uh, the small idiosyncrasies of the Comey Event podcast intro, despite the fact that it's virtually identical, as your man Mike Goldberg would say, to every other. Now, see, I see them hitting you up on Twitter to talk about their utter disdain for the music of the Comey Event podcast. Well, I didn't make the music of the intro. Well, the intro is the only good music we have. All right, stuck. Now you're treading on thin ice over here. <laughs> you trying to start off on on my bad side? I'm just saying. I'm just saying, this is what I hear from the people. You're with your ear to the street? Yeah. How's your hand, by the way? Is your hand okay? My hand? Yeah, you came to a barbecue at my house last night and punched a small child in the face. That's right. So I just wanted to check in on your hand. The hand's okay. The child had a very soft, delicate face. You know what? He took it well. He did take it well. And if you're listening out there in co-main event podcast uh, listener land, and you want to know who is the aged grandpa at your barbecue who is going to teach the small children how to box... I mean, it will come as no surprise that that man has been folks. Well, and that he will accidentally, I assume, in his drunkenness, strike a child. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, let's be sure to note that the child had was holding a corn on the cob, um, which he dropped, and so it was hilarious. Um, it was a great bit of physical comedy. Also, are you going to try to tell me that child did not know more about boxing when he left your barbecue than he did when he arrived? He came out smarter for it and probably disfigured. Yeah. Well, then he tried to uh, collar tie me uh, on his way out the door and I had to put him in a guillotine. Oh, wow. I didn't even see that. Yeah. So things escalated from the time that I saw you strike him in the face. Yeah. Well, you know, we worked on the striking, and then we wanted to work on the grappling. No, yeah, you want to uh, round out his skill set at the Sunday afternoon barbecue where he was there with his mom. Yeah. Had a good time. Thanks for having me over. (laughs) I think everybody did, especially that kid. Uh, Guys, as of yesterday, it's exactly one month before Champion of the World comes out, which means that you still have some time to jump on board the pre-order train. If you so desire, as we've discussed again and again on this show, pre-orders are super important for first time novelists uh, because they at least in part help determine how much my publishing company will be willing to promote the book and which publications are going to review it. So if you find it in your heart to pre-order the book and support my writing career, you can go out and do that. You can order the thing today. Uh, you can do that at a number of places, either at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Or hell, you can go down to your local book bookstore and ask them to order it for you. <laughs> I want to I want to hear from the person who chooses that option. To go down to the local bookstore? And ask them to order it. Maybe it's a person who cares deeply about the local economy. I really want to hear from the person who walks down there, says, please order Chad Dundas's novel. Perhaps someone is out there taking some time off from the internet. 
Okay. But loving a podcast. Somehow listening to the podcast. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, he came into our lives via grainy pixelated internet video and left as one of the most recognizable fighters ever to do the damn thing. We will discuss the life and death of Kimbo Slice. And in round number two, I've waited so long to say these words on the CME. Brock Lesnar is back. And who knows what he's been putting in his body for the last five years. And in round number three, did y'all know Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is going to try to do karate on Rory McDonald this weekend? And Rory McDonald is 25 minutes of fighting away from being a free agent? So that's fucking interesting, man. All that plus just saying stuff, are you fucking kidding me? And our guy, Sir Nigel Longstock, is going to come by and play a little bit of Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jay Cree, who writes, I understand that you are friends with Ariel Helwani. However, whilst the treatment of Ariel and colleagues by the UFC was totally unacceptable, the fact that you didn't acknowledge his journalistic failings casts doubt on your own integrity. Ouch. That stings. He has openly admitted taking money from Zufa whilst, that's the second whilst in this email. That's quite enough. Claiming to be, to act as an impartial journalist. He has also openly admitted having his questions filtered through Zufa. I don't expect much from the MMA media these days, but I used to enjoy your work, so I expected more from you. Why are we reading this question? Jesus Christ. A scathing attack from J. Cree. Yeah. You know, I thought on last week's uh, Comey Event podcast that we talked at length about the mistakes that Ariel Helwani made, but we do do this show without a script. So perhaps things did not come out quite as clearly as we wanted them to, or maybe it was a situation where people hear what they want to. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, uh, but okay. You know what though? I will say that there is a a point to be made there that we just in general, I think a lot of us focused on the whole UFC lifetime ban that lasted two days and, did not focus quite nearly as much as on on Ariel Helwani's admission that he is being paid by the UFC. Right. A lot of people did focus on that, though. Okay, sure. Remember when the rumor broke that the UFC was going to release that information to distract people from the actual situation at hand? I do not remember that rumor, but I'd heard that. Right. Um, I'm glad we were all smart enough to not fall for that. (laughs) Uh, we did talk about how, at least in Ariel Helwani's telling of it, it sounded like the UFC purposely structured the deal this way, seemingly so that, or, you know, or maybe just so as a happy consequence, happy accident, they would have something over him. Uh, and here's that something. But I also think that maybe if the backlash or the outrage over that is not enough for J. Cree, maybe part of it is due to that. We all felt like we saw what was happening over at state-run media, so it doesn't feel like that big of a surprise right. to learn that something like that was going on. Yeah. I feel like that's true. Like, if you're already watching Fox television, watching Fox's coverage of the UFC, I think you you understand what you're going to get, no matter if it's Ariel Hawani conducting a backstage interview or uh, Heidi Andral conducting a backstage interview or Karen Bryant or Daniel Cormier or Dominic Cruz appearing at the desk. I think we all kind of knew what was going on. Uh, however, just in case we weren't clear about it last week, I did want to say I do think that it was a mistake for Ariel to – agree to become party to to a situation where he would get his checks directly from the UFC while appearing in this specific 
role of backstage interviewer during UFC broadcasts, which we've known for a long time that the UFC is really kind of like jealously guards its own productions. That was a sticking point between the UFC and uh, any number of like cable providers for years. So really to find that out, like in retrospect, kind of makes sense because the UFC uh, has always insisted on controlling all of its own productions. And I think that that was a mistake. I think Ariel would tell you that was a mistake. I think he said he thought it was a mistake ultimately on his show. And I, and I feel like when he went through his reasoning behind it, um, I feel empathy for him, man, because I have worked at big companies myself. Uh, you know, I used to work at ESPN. I used to work a little bit for the AP. I work at Bleacher Report now, which is the second largest sports website in America. So it's like, I understand what it's like to work for these corporations where sometimes like you have to make decisions that don't necessarily square with your own philosophy. But, and I think in Ariel's case, he did it just because he did want to be on TV as a broadcaster. Uh, but again, to be clear, it like it's kind of the cardinal rule, the or the cardinal sin. You can't take money from the people that you cover. Uh, and I think that if you asked him, he would say that he regrets that. And I think that we all wish that he hadn't done that. But I would also say, and like that, I hope that that was clear enough, by the way, for all the people listening. But I, w- I would also say like, if the co-main event podcast has ever promised anything, it's that we will have the real conversations on this show that you and I would have if we weren't recording it. Yeah. And I feel like it's the fake and disingenuous conversation to be like, Oh, Ariel Helwani took money from the UFC. We can never trust him again or whatever. I feel like that's not true. And the real conversation to me is yes, this guy made a mistake. He admitted it on his show. He essentially apologized for it. He said, he's not going to do it again. And to say that that mistake overdoes or like undermines the totality of his contribution to this sport is ridiculous. I agree. I will say this, however, kind of as a devil's advocate thing. Um, We've talked before how you and I both in the past had written articles for the UFC magazine, right? Which was published through like a third party publishing company. And they're the ones who paid us, right? No, the checks came, or at least I don't know. I've never saw your checks. I don't know where they came from, but my checks from UFC magazine before it became defunct uh, came from a shady P.O. box in Deltona Beach, Florida, and from the, a company called Ultimate Fighting Champions. Oh, really? So as far as I know, my three or four checks came straight from the UFC, which I guess also makes me a paid shill. Okay. But I assume see, if anyone the, listens to this podcast, they will know that we're just over here towing the company line every week. <laughs> but the point I will make about that is um, I think I wrote two articles for the UFC magazine. Did your checks not come from Deltona Beach, Florida? I don't – I didn't – you know, as long as they cleared, I don't remember thinking too much about it. But I, all my contacts were with a – the editor from a publishing company. Right. Seth, um, Seth Kelly, Seth right? Kelly, right. Good dude, by the yeah. way. Um, and they did other, they published other magazines too. They didn't just do the UFC magazine. Um, but even then after I wrote about two articles, I think it was, uh, and then they came to me and wanted me to write a different article. And I told him, you know, I'm not really interested in writing for the UFC magazine anymore because I just feel like it's a little, a little too close, uh, to just doing coverage paid by the UFC for the UFC. Um, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. I think it's a conflict of interest and I, and I don't want to do it anymore. Um, and he was, he said he was totally understanding of that. He said, all right, I get that. Um, thanks. Thanks for telling me. And, and that was that. 
And there's a difference, I think, between doing that and saying, and I'm not trying to say, like, I am the paragon of virtue that Ariel Hawani fails to be here. This is a man who punched a child in the face that's last right. night, it, folks. Just keep all, that in mind. First of all, it was a jab. <laughs> um, but the there's a difference between being like, okay, I'm going to stop doing this because I think it's a conflict of interest and I, you know, I don't think this is something a journalist should be doing. And, you know, he got fired from that show when the UFC finally got mad at him over uh, doing, reportedly doing journalism, doing journalism on his own time on, on his own show, talking to Rory McDonald about free agency. They fired him from that. Um, like, so he did not quit that job over this realizing that he made a mistake. And then we didn't find out about it by him just saying, you know what? Um, now that I'm out there, I'm going to tell you guys what happened. We found out about it when he became concerned that it was going to come out, that the UFC was going to use it against him. So again, I, I, I agree that it's not something where we need to pile on Ariel Hawani and forget about the real story that was going on there. But at the same time, there is a difference between saying like, okay, I'm, I'm telling you about this and I'm admitting this mistake and saying like, I'm admitting this mistake because I realize that you're going to learn about it anyway. You sure. know what I'm saying? Yeah, fair enough. I think that's a fair point. And I also, you know, even though we kid him, I feel like the reason that we wanted to read Jay Cree's email on here was that maybe that's a valid criticism of the conversation that we had last week. Maybe we didn't, uh, you know, place enough blame where it, where it belonged. But I would also say like in the aftermath of, of this entire episode, I feel like that aspect of it got an awful lot of play. In, from certain people and in certain certain corners of the uh, of the quote unquote media, I guess. And like I said, just to, re to repeat myself one more time, you know, taking money or having your questions vetted by uh, sources before you do the interviews is bad. You shouldn't do that. Although the thing about questions, I think people would be aghast if they found out how many people actually do that. Not just in the MMA media, but like sports media wide. Uh, you know, all of that stuff is bad. But at the same time, like. If you look at the at the the happenings of UFC 199 and why Ariel Helwani got banned for life, comma two days uh, from the UFC, was because he reported news before they they wanted him to. It turned out to be right. It turned out to be accurate. And because he reported that news, because it was Ariel Helwani who reported that Brock Lesnar was coming back, people believed it. Like we've heard numerous reports over the five years since Brock Lesnar has been gone saying, you know, Brock Lesnar to return to the UFC dot, 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 question mark. And everybody fucking rolls their eyes every time. Cause we're like, Oh, what is a slow news day? If somebody's got to write a thing about Brock Lesnar, maybe coming back to the UFC, Ariel Helwani tweets it. And behind the scenes, all these emails start flying back and forth between reporters and their outlets trying to be like, is this true? Can, can we confirm this? Is this really going to happen? And then it, it proved to be accurate. And I would just say, if the, the umbrella worry here is that Ariel Hawani taking money from the UFC for a time to appear as a backstage interviewer on those UFC broadcasts, if the worry about that is that you will not be able to trust him in the future, look at what happened at UFC 199. He broke some news because he was the one who broke it. We all took added interest to it. It turned out to be factual and the UFC fucking flipped their shit. So like, I understand how bad all of this, like what a bad transgression that was, but like to what end at this point, I guess would be my point. Uh, yeah. I, and I guess also though, lastly, I would say maybe if you want to look at a, uh, kind of accidental result of this is now, how is it supposed to look for anybody who is on that show? Right. 
anybody who's on the UFC Tonight show, everybody's going to look at them and be like, UFC employee. I mean, if you didn't look at it that right. way already, mm -hmm. the UFC just guaranteed that you will. Um, so if you make that the, the part of the big story, then you're basically telling everybody that, um, you know, you're confirming for everybody that it's state-run media. All right. Next question this week comes to us from Todd Mueller. He writes, good morning, gentlemen. Please confabulate on Monday's story on extending the quote-unquote Ali Act to MMA. Could this finally drive meaningful change? Link below. And the link that uh, he included uh, is actually from Fro Fox Sports for from uh, Elias Cepeda, uh, a story about not only a congressional bill that is currently working its way uh, through Congress that could expand the Muhammad Ali Act from to include boxing from and to include MMA uh, and other combat sports as well, and the fact that uh, the UFC has hired a lobbying firm to lobby against those efforts. Yes. Farragut Partners is the lobbying firm that they uh, that they hired, and I know you want to, I know you want to talk about this, but I just want to read one paragraph from this just to give like a quick overview of what the Ali Act might do and how it could in theory, affect MMA. I just want to read this short part. The All-E All Act includes restrictions against promoters holding fighters to contract provisions that last more than a year, requires promoters to divulge full revenues to fighters, mandates fair rankings, which can't be manipulated by promoters to exert power over fighters, and creates a, quote, firewall between promoters and managers, prohibiting promoters from having a financial interest in the management of a fighter and managers from having a financial interest in promotions of fighters, among other standards. Okay. Um, so all that stuff that would directly affect this sport. Yeah. In theory. The, yeah, the, the big stuff is, um, well, you know, I've been working on a, a story about this. I should tell people that it'll probably be up tomorrow, maybe Wednesday, um, depending on when, when all the pieces align for me. But, uh, I talked to the Congressman, uh, from Oklahoma, I believe it is Mark Wayne Mullen, who is pr pushing this legislation. I talked to the UFC about it. I talked to other people who, uh, are just kind of, have a stake in it or some experience with it one way or another uh, to kind of get a sense of what's happening and what it could mean. Um, and for one thing, we should say long way from becoming law right now. I believe, you know, it was just introduced at the end of May um, in committee right now. And it's, there's nobody really seems to have a, a good idea of when this is going to be settled. And the UFC, like you said, has their lobbyists out. Uh, UFC COO uh, Lawrence Epstein went to meet, with uh, Congressman Mullen to basically tell him uh, this is unnecessary. Uh, Congressman Mullen's response, according to him, was, you know, if you're not worried about it and you don't think it's necessary, why are you here trying to talk me out of it, basically? And the thing, the big things that it would do, uh, like establishing a kind of independent third-party ranking system, um, and a lot of this is kind of hard for MMA fans, I think, to get our heads around because it would mean a considerable reshaping of the MMA world. Uh, and one of the concerns that the, the Congressman Mullen has is the UFC has its own rankings and it can manipulate those rankings and has manipulated those rankings in the past. So we've seen, you know, Nate Diaz uh, dropped from the rankings when he was basically in a contract dispute with the UFC. Uh, and that there would be an independent body to create these rankings. And then they would, you know, basically have to go by the rankings when deciding how to match these guys up. So you couldn't just have the champion fight, you know, the number eighth ranked guy because it was going to be an interesting fight that people would pay for. Um, also the stuff about not like limiting contract terms um, to 12 months where you wouldn't be able to lock a guy down in a long-term contract. 
Uh, that kind of stuff would mean serious, serious changes. But at the same time, I think a lot of people look at boxing and say, well, okay, if these, if this same act applies to boxing. It doesn't necessarily seem to have had the result of making boxing the, the cleanest and, uh, most fighter friendly sport in the world. No. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, opponents of this would probably, uh, point to this, the state that, that boxing is in, in general, uh, and say that perhaps some of that exists because you can't lock guys down in to, in long-term contracts. But then boxers are paid much better than MMA fighters, uh, especially, you know, at the highest level, you see that there is a huge difference in pay. And so then, you know, the other people would point back to that and say, one of the reasons why that is the case is because promoters have to bid for boxers and they have to bid, you know, fairly often. And when the guy leaves a promoter, his rank goes with him. You know, if he's got that little number two next to his name or whatever, uh, that number's going with him. You can't take that away from him just because he's not your guy anymore. It kind of takes that out of the hands of the promoter, um, which isn't to say, you know, pro owners don't still find ways around some of those uh, restrictions. And I've heard a lot of people saying like, hey, you know, if we want to have some kind of federal legislation about MMA, then we should have it specific to MMA rather than just changing the wording of an existing act that applies to boxing. And so that instead of boxer, it says fighter. Uh, and I can see the logic in that. I also would wonder, though, what would those people want that legislation to look like? Like, Because that's where you're going to get into the, the same debate again, because these are pre could be pretty sweeping changes for MMA. And if you're saying you, know, you think that these are the wrong changes, I'd be interested to know what are the right changes. Yeah. And as you said, the process is kind of just getting underway. So it's going to be a while before we find out the ultimate fate of this uh, legislative effort. As a, a layer of irony, though, on top of this thing that the UFC just did that moving tribute to Muhammad Ali at UFC 199. And I have to admit, while that was happening and I was sitting at home watching it, I just kept thinking like this. I mean, the UFC production team is obviously super good. And so like it was a a like a good video tribute. And I think a lot of people gave it compliments on, on social media. And I think it deserved those. But as it was airing, I was like, you would have fucking hated Muhammad Ali. If he, if he was one of your fighters and he would have hated you, like he would have had a huge problem with uh, working with the UFC. You, he's just not the kind of company guy that the UFC tends to like in fighters that, that would, they would have definitely come into conflict. And that was one of the things that I would worry about if I were the UFC and I was trying to keep this uh, from passing is, uh, right now is a pretty politically expedient time to be going around Washington, D.C. with something called the, the Muhammad Ali Act. I right. mean, people just hear that, and that's going to sound good to a lot of people. It's going to sound like something you want to put your name behind, or at least that you don't want to be the guy uh, going against that. Um, so, the, you know, then again, though, this, I think, is a sort of a long process and not anything that uh, is going to be decided super quickly. All right, let's do one more from the Cheeseburger Walrus, who writes, let's talk a little bit about Robert Glenn Lawler, shall we? I'm sure you saw his recent interview sit down with some reporter and, and Tyrone Woodley, or Tyrone Woodley, where he said, Nate Diaz let Conor McGregor off easy. Lawler said if it was him in there with Conor, he would have taken his soul, his motherfucking soul. Seems funny at first, <laughs> but then I went back and rewatched the ending of Lawler versus Rory McDonald 2, and I swear on my Team Dundas Platinum membership that I actually saw Rory's soul 
soul leave his body right after Lawler broke his whole shit with one punch. So basically, is Robbie Lawler the real-life Grim Reaper? Thoughts. Uh, did you see this? Like, uh, I believe in, like, you know, Vine or Instagram video form that yeah, is widely circulated the in the media. Not... I didn't see the whole interview either. I just saw the chilling part where Robbie Lawler <laughs> says that about – Conor McGregor, and as I tweeted at the time, it seemed like one of those HBO documentaries where they go to prison to interview a serial killer. <laughs> like, that is, that is how it came off, because it was also like, uh, the interviewer, who I can't remember who it was at this point. Do you recall? It says no. some reporter in this, in this email. I don't, uh, I don't remember who it was either, but like, the guy had to ask Robbie Lawler, like, three questions to get him to even admit, or to even say the thing about Conor McGregor's soul. Because Robbie Lawler in in deadpan serial serial killer style was like, if I hurt him, I wasn't just going to take his neck. And the guy was like, what would you have done? <laughs> I would have taken his soul. I was just like, what are we watching? The Confessions of the Iceman here? Like on, on HBO? This is you terrifying. Know, you know what it made awesome. me think of, though, is Robbie Lawler's fight with Frank Trigg. Uh, that happened, I think, at the Icon Sport promotion in Hawaii. Do you remember that one? Where he he... Basically, I think it's late in the fight. He backs Trigg into the corner and hits him with a punch that where basically as soon as the punch lands, oh, Trigg yeah. is knocked out. I do remember this, actually. And he, as he's kind of falling slowly, yeah. he's obviously out. Yes. Robbie Lawler adds one more vicious uppercut uh, and almost knocks Frank Trigg's head clean off. And afterwards, he said something along the lines that basically were like, yeah, I didn't need to do that. And I would not have done that to somebody else who I liked and respected. But I went ahead and did it to Frank Trigg. And, you know, if you haven't seen that one, go look that one up because it is a vicious, vicious moment. And you see it and then you hear him talk about taking somebody's soul. And you're like, that's he's not just talking there. No, that's the thing that's so chilling about it. He's he's totally serious. And we've seen him do it in the past. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions or comments, concerns to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short, it's informative, it's humorous. We think you'll like it. But if you don't, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, this is sort of a solemn topic, although one that seems big and important enough that we wanted to talk a little bit about it on the podcast proper, in addition to the blurb that we wrote in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter last Friday. Uh, Kimbo Slice, a.k.a. Kevin Ferguson, died last Monday night at the age of 42. Uh, since then, we've had news reports uh, that say that, that Kimbo Slice had been diagnosed with heart failure and informed that he needed a heart transplant. 
uh, and that he was admitted to the hospital on June 3rd complaining of, quote, severe abdominal pain, shortness of breath, and nausea. That's all from a story by Brett Okamoto over at ESPN. Um, I guess we can talk about the circumstances of Kimbo Slice's death in a minute and maybe how that affects Bellator, because he did have a fight booked, which is kind of weird. And he had a fight booked in London where there's not a state athletic commission overseeing it to necessarily go through the, the steps and make sure stuff like this isn't happening. Right. First of all, I wanted to know, though, what, when did you first become aware of Kimbo Slice? Do you remember? Do you remember what it was that, that like, pulled your coat to the existence of Kimbo Slice? I had a, I had a friend who uh, watched pornography on the internet. Okay. Uh, was uh, this friend named Fen Bolks? An activity I did not condone. Um, but my friend, knowing that I had an interest in the martial arts, was like they also on this uh, website, which is called Sublime Directory, and it was a real old school internet porn site, like just kind of the the dark ages of internet porn, uh, and you know, like one step up from looking at somebody's drawing of boobs. It was just one. <laughs> it was one step ahead of that. And they were like, okay, there's also these street fight videos on there, which seemed odd to me and incongruous with, right. with Sublime Wait, it seemed odd to your friend or did you just – It seemed so, odd to me when my friend told me Okay, about. yeah. thought you were going to catch me there, didn't you? No. It was a weird show for you, man. Um, and, you know, it was like – I saw that one where he turns the dude's eye into hamburger, the right. chill dog fight. Yes, yeah. That was also the first video that I ever saw of Kimbo Slice. I'm sure at a very wholesome website uh, – and I was thinking about that video earlier today and just thinking about how kind of weirdly iconic that entire video has become in the years since because we got a lot out of that whole video. Like the uh, – that was, as you mentioned, the advent of the chill dog. Yeah. Uh, as the legend goes, it was also the the fight that earned Kimbo Slice his nickname, Kimbo Slice. Uh and, you know, that has the get em Ferg yeah, uh, it does. guys in it, which is still fun to say in various it really situations is. of life. Uh, you know, those, these two guys are fighting in a backyard in front of like a, some, there's some modern art out there in the yard <laughs> that they have to steer clear of during their, while, while they're fighting. Uh, and yeah, I remember watching it and just like at the end of it, being like fascinated and terrified because at the end remember at the end of that one that's also the one where like kimbo cuts a promo at the end of it as they're walking to the car <laughs> to be like i gotta get that bread or whatever he says uh and so as far as like an introductory video to who kimbo slice was like you couldn't do much better than the get ferg uh video yeah uh and it's it's totally bizarre to think of what he became in this sport from those beginnings. Well, you know, and that's one of the things that I wrote about in writing about, you know, how will we remember Kimbo Slice in MMA um, and how because of the time period and because of the way he came up, it was such a a really like specific cultural moment. And it was like right now, I don't think for one thing, like viral video is basically just like an established thing. There are people who are that's all they do is they do YouTube videos. You know, and this was before YouTube even existed. It was a couple of years before uh, YouTube existed. So it was a really weird thing that we we finally had this technology where, you know, you could make a video in your backyard and millions of people could see it. But that hadn't really happened too often yet. And we definitely weren't – we didn't have that established uh, arc of like 
somebody becomes a viral video sensation and then they're on actual TV. Like now that's a thing that happens all the time. There are people just like looking for a viral video sensation to put on TV and it's happened so many times that we're kind of immune to it and we see, okay, fine. There was somebody we might hear of via a backyard video and then they'll be famous and we accept that. And that was not really the case back then. He was one of the first people to to have that. And it was also such a weird thing because it was like mixed martial arts still felt new. And so when Kimbo Slice was basically brought into mixed martial arts, there was also this feeling of, hey, this guy is like a phony. Like he doesn't belong. He's being pushed in there because the promoters see an opportunity to make money. And so there are a lot of hardcore MMA fans who who wanted to see Kimbo Slice do poorly. And that just fed into the the fame even more. Right. And then I think it was really only when he got on the Ultimate Fighter which again, they put him on the Ultimate Fighter with Dana White kind of being like, I don't know about this guy, Kimbo Slice, but I said I'd give him the chance to be on the Ultimate Fighter if he wanted to be. So here he is. And all the other fighters when he first showed up, at least the way they were portrayed on the show, was that like, what is this dude? What's his deal? Like they were not really big fans of Kimbo Slice being there. And then when they got to know him, everybody loved him because he right. was such a nice dude. My uh, Yeah. And by all accounts, a super nice guy from everyone who I've heard from. Uh, except for maybe that guy who got beat up in the backyard. Uh, yeah, as I recall in the ultimate fighter, every single person wanted to fight him on day one. And it was, they did not want to fight him on a, in a, he's the best and I am excited to test my skills against him kind of <laughs> right. way. They wanted to fight him in a far more predatory manner. Uh, and I think that that like kind of speaks to the weirdness of Kimbo Slice's staying power as an MMA fighter. Like, as you said, he sh- just showed up. Uh, as the like main event attraction of Elite XC back in 2007, 2008. And there was a lot of like uh, kind of disdain for him from people who were quote unquote hardcore MMA fans. And the guy only won three fights for Elite XC uh, over Bo Cantrell, Tank Abbott, and James Thompson. And then there was the infamous fight where he got beat by Seth, uh, Seth, Pet- Seth excuse me, Seth Petrozelli, the, silver the silverback. Yeah. Uh, and then he showed up on the Ultimate Fighter and did not do well. And then he kind of got run out of the UFC. He beat Houston Alexander in that catchweight fight and then, you know, lost to uh, Matt Mitrione and kind of got run out of the UFC and then showed up in Bellator several years after that after kind of a uh, not necessarily very highly thought of professional boxing stint. So, like, man, what was it about Kimbo Slice that from those years where we first saw him in those videos to 2015 – like he was still a huge star, still able to be promoted as a huge star, even though we knew damn good and well he wasn't that great at this. Well, yeah, and not only do we know that he wasn't that great at this, but that his fights, you know, most of the time were not really good, not empirically good fights. And yet there was still some entertainment value that you could not deny. And that's what we said about that Dada 5000 fight, which was an awful fight, perhaps the worst fight that I've seen. And yet it was like, because of who it was, you know, there wasn't anybody who regretted sitting there and watching it somehow. Uh, and, you know, it, it occurs to me too, when you talk, especially about his early days where he fought Bo Cantrell, Tank Abbott, and then James Thompson, the backlash that he got was not really dissimilar from what you see happening with Sage Northcutt, where it seems like, and I know that actually is a comparison I did not think we I were going to make. Know, I on know this you show. didn't think we were going to see the Kimbo Slice Sage Northcutt analogy, but it was the same kind of thing where it looked like okay, the promoter has somebody they think could be a, a big cash cow for them. They want to protect that person. They're picking advantageous matchups solely to protect them, 
And so there's really, you know, there's a kind of a, a simmering anger at the promoter for that, but somehow it gets transferred to the fighter. And, but that, the same way you see it happening with Sage Northcutt, it kind of only made him a bigger star. Well, let's talk about the untimely demise of Kimbo Slice. Uh, like we said, he had been diagnosed with heart failure and was waiting for a heart transplant. We still, as far as I know, haven't gotten the official word as to cause of death, but, uh, you know, there seems to be a lot of smoke around the idea of the heart failure and, uh, just a weird situation, man, to have a guy pass away at 42 years old and, uh, to have a guy who had just fought in Bellator and a guy who had another fight coming up, like you said, in London where we didn't think there would be very much oversight and a guy who got that fight booked by Bellator while he was still kind of going through the regulatory process in Texas after testing positive for steroids. And we, I know we've talked about this on the show before, but like, at what point does Bellator begin to think, Hey man, this thing we've been doing, it worked for a while, but like maybe we've gotten lucky here right at the end. Man, you'd hope this has got to be the point, right? Because it does seem like just in several different ways, things could have gone really, really badly for Bellator. Yeah, I don't think you can overstate the fact that this guy had a fight booked, had a fight coming up next month in London uh, against his old nemesis, James Thompson. Well, and I don't think you can overlook the part that it is in, in London. And I think that also... You know, why was it in London? Because Kimbo Slice, after testing positive for, for steroids, you know, they had that fight booked. Uh, he tested positive in Texas. They had that fight booked before he had, he, he knew what his punishment was going to be from Texas. Right. Bellator had already signaled like, we don't really care about this. We're moving on and we're going to take him to London. So even if he gets suspended for an entire year, it won't matter because he can, we'll just take him to London and fight. Uh, and you know, we're not worried about it. So, when you're doing something like that, and then if you also were putting the guy in a situation where maybe, depending on your own medical oversight, he might not have gotten the the care he he needed to to catch something like this beforehand, that's really concerning. And it's even more concerning that Bellator right now being sued by former employee Zach Light, and among his allegations, it's Bellator, and again, these are still allegations uh, right now, but that he said that Bellator new fighters had forged medicals and didn't do anything about it and told him over and over again, stop talking about it, stop bringing it up and just focus on doing your job. Um, all that stuff together makes it seem like Bellator is playing a really risky game here. And man, that just, it, it almost seems incredibly lucky that nothing terrible has happened on Bellator's watch. Right. A singular individual in the mixed martial arts landscape, uh, Kimbo Slice, dead at 42. It will be interesting to see, like we said, how Bellator moves on from this and whether or not it stays the course with its uh, current matchmaking philosophy. As for right now, though, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little bit of Master Tweet Theater. It's been a couple weeks since we got the chance to catch up with him. He seems particularly excited about this week. Uh, I understand he's been uh, working hard to come up with some good stuff for us. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am beset by allergens. Oh, no. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yes, sir. Dust, mold, pollens, microbules of all kinds. Okay. This isn't very interesting, so we're going to move on from this. 
Uh, I guess right off I'll ask, is there a theme this week? Yes, sir, there is, and I'd like to talk about it. The theme is Pineapple Express Yourself. Huh. Pineapple. What? How is that a theme? Pineapple Express Yourself tweets from people who are in Hawaii, obviously stoned, or employed in the field of written expression. So your your theme is pretty broad, is yes. what you're saying to me. Yes, but also nuanced. You see, sir, I have been thinking a little bit about your criticism of my themes lately. Lately, as in, like, just entirely? You know, I've well, I've been hearing it, let's just say. <laughs> I have heard your criticism. And one of the talents an artist of my caliber must possess is the ability to use criticism. Okay, and how have you used this criticism? Well, I sat down and I thought about what you said long and hard, your criticism of my themes, and I thought to myself, wouldn't the audience rather hear something else? <laughs> I see. Anything but Ben Folks's criticism. And so, in order to give the people what they want, I have decided to placate you and put a little more effort into my themes. And by more effort, you mean you just make it easier for you to not screw it up. 10% more effort into my themes, and yes, 50% more foolproof. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this completely falls apart. <clears throat> Tweet the first. We shall see, sir. We shall see. Tweet the first. I need my next MacBook to have an at UFC key on the keyboard. That would save me so much time when I'm writing. First world problems. That's a hashtag at the end. Okay. Someone really wants a custom-made MacBook so that they don't have to type what amounts to basically four keystrokes. I'm, I'm still confused about the theme. Is this a person who was in Hawaii? Is it? This? <laughs> Could it be? Or is it a person who is obviously stoned? Or... Is it a person employed in the field of written expression? I mean, it could be any of those things. Well, it seems like written expression is the way to go here because this person references writing. Um, and they also, by writing, they apparently mean Twitter. Or are they saying that they don't, they don't want the key to say at UFC. They just need the key to say UFC. It seems, I would imagine he wants a single UFC key and he tagged the UFC so they could see what a good boy he was. Um, you see how I tricked Sir Nigel into giving something away? Yeah, now we know it's a man. That's right. Crafty. That's a veteran move right you can't, now. You can't see this right now, listeners of the podcast, but I'm tapping my my brain with my finger and then shaking my finger in the air to say, oh, no, Sir Nigel, you've been outsmarted. Hmm. Someone has been teaching to the test. Um. Okay, I'm going to say Josh Saman. Active on Twitter, yeah. does some writings, employed by the UFC. Uh-huh. There you go. Um, am I going too far afield to say Gareth A. Davies here? Oh. Is he on Twitter? Okay. He's on Twitter. He, okay. He's got to be. Hmm. Both fine guesses. One, a person I have heard of before, and both wrong. It is Dan Hardy. Oh, Dan Hardy. The outlaw Dan Hardy, or the employee Dan Hardy in this case. Yeah, I don't think he's going to get that MacBook. <clears throat> Tweet the second. If you're Wednesday, my Saturday hiking this morning, watch Dirty Grandpa, shit's hilarious. What? Huh? What? Huh, indeed. Would you like to hear it again? Yeah, maybe slower this time? I'll do it dramatically. Oh, thank you. If you're Wednesday, my Saturday hiking this morning, watch Dirty Grandpa, Shit's hilarious. I mean, that's got to be Jessica I, right? 
<laughs> uh, can I get a clarification? Not that this is going to matter in any way, but I'm just curious. Is that the possessive you're or the contraction you are? You are. And shockingly, this sentence ends with a period and begins with a capital letter, sir. Okay. So I guess here we're going with... All right. I'm going to say Kendall Grove, somebody from Hawaii. I'm sticking with Jessica I. All right. Both fine guesses, at least one Hawaiian, and both wrong. It is Chris Lieben. He's not in Hawaii. He's not in Hawaii. Do you know that? He's not in Hawaii anymore? No. Ah, damn it. (laughs) Well, he's stoned, I'm sure. What are we on? Tweet number two? Tweet the second that was. That one fell apart? Okay. darn it. Note it for the record. Hmm. Also, it seems Chris Lieben's phone has suffered some sort of injury from being repeatedly struck. (laughs) We'll look right into that. Okay. Tweet the third. Every 60 seconds, there is a hood rat near you waking up and trying to figure out why the dude that she just raw-dogged her got her blocked. (laughs) I think I know this one, one too. I think this is my man Derek Lewis, the Black Beast. It is. It is Derek Lewis, the Black Beast, one of several tweets I had to choose from that he created this week. Once you fully discover the social media world of Derek Lewis, there's no turning back. You you become just engrossed with it. This tweet is like the clay golem of jokes. Like he's just mashed it together and prayed for it to come to life. (laughs) Golem, some people say. Sure sure they do. Golem. Tweet. (laughs) Pardon me. Something stuck in my throat. Tweet the fourth. Anyone in Hawaii know someone good to get your car wrapped? LMK. Car wrap. Okay, I don't understand the, the the car wrapping thing. What is that? Well, I think that's when you want to have a bunch of like graphics on your car. Okay. They All wrap right. it with some kind of cellophane. <laughs> it's like getting your nails done, but All bigger. Right. Man, who in Hawaii want to have their car wrapped, Chad? That's the question. Uh, Max Holloway. See, I'm going to go ahead and say this is Kendall Grove. Okay. Both fine guesses, both like to wrap a car. Only one correct. It is Max Holloway. Ah, Boom. Jerome Max Holloway, who is... Some of that bonus money get car wrapped. That's right. He thought about it for a week or so and decided, yes, he would splurge. (laughs) Tweet the fifth. If you... There's the last one. Tweet the fifth. If you aren't inspired by Bisping, then there's something wrong with you. You got any guesses here? Mm, no. Because most people don't seem like they would like Michael Bisping in the UFC. Is this one Michael Bisping? I'm going to say this is Michael Bisping. Oh, wow. That's an interesting guess. Uh, let's see here. Who would like Michael Bisping? Uh... <laughs> Delicious. How about your eye favor? Okay. Sure. Both fine guesses, both prime exponents of Michael Bisping, and both wrong. It is Chael Sonnen. Oh! All right. Chael Sonnen, a practitioner of written expression, is he not? I think he mostly does podcasts. He's got like a book on his homepage, though, right? He explicitly told me that he that book was written as he called up a dude and told him things, and the dude wrote it down. Hmm. Well, we'll have to send that one to the judges. <laughs> 
Well, that... Well, actually, I forgot to ask you. You got anything else going on? You know, it's funny you <laughs> yeah. should ask, sir. I've just shot an exciting project. It's about a tough cop who falls into a coma for seven years, wakes up, and fights for black defendants in the southern courts. I see. And what's it called? It's called Hard to Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> and what role do you play? I play Boo Radley, a guy who gets wrist-locked and thrown out of a window. <laughs> that... This Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, I know you have long mourned the fact that the CME podcast did not coexist with the Brock Lesnar era in MMA, and you always wondered, what might have been? We could have sat around your living room table talking about Brock Lesnar most of the damn time. And it seems like the MMA gods heard your plea, my friend, because he is coming back to the UFC, and now you get to talk about him until your little heart's content. What do you think about that? I'm just uh, I'm still a little bit sorry it couldn't happen five years ago when we would have been sitting here wearing our stained T-shirts, our, uh, you know, tr- maybe a couple of train T-shirts. I don't know who was big in 2011. Yeah, it was completely different era, and I guess we had completely different tastes that I apparently don't remember. I was doing an awful lot of cocaine back in those days. <laughs> I don't remember a lot of it. Yeah. But yeah, Ben Brock Lesnar is back, and... uh you know, we wrote about that a little bit in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, that letter that he is going to fight Mark Hunt at UFC 200, uh, and also that he has received this special exemption to the uh, UFC slash USADA drug testing policy, which typically mandates that if a fighter is going to come out of retirement, they have to notify uh, USADA four months in advance and have this like uh, waiting period, I guess you could say, uh, which... Seems obvious that the waiting period exists so that they can test you and make sure that you have this gap between whatever you were doing before and you were going to get in the cage and fight another man stripped to the waist in no holds barred hand to hand combat. Yeah, because uh, otherwise it seems like it would be a huge loophole if you were able to say, uh, you know what, I'm retired. Don't come knocking on my door, USADA, and then say, I'm unretired and I have a fight booked for Saturday. And uh, in a statement that the UFC originally released to Kevin Ioli from Yahoo Sports, we discovered that the UFC, not necessarily USADA, which is one of the interesting uh, twists and turns in this story, can circumvent that rule, quote, in the ex- in exceptional circumstances or where the strict application of the rule would man- be manifestly unfair to the athlete. Uh and I guess these are the exceptional circumstances. Well, yeah, you got to think like if this Brock, doesn't seem manifestly unfair. If well, you got to think if Brock Lesnar is coming back to the UFC and this is going to be a one-time thing, he only has one fight left in him. Uh, that is kind of exceptional circumstances. However, it is also kind of interesting slash funny to me that like the in the statement the UFC releases itself, it makes absolutely no acknowledgement of any kind of notion of like, well, Brock Lesnar could just not fight at UFC 200. He right. could fight at like UFC 203 or 204 and everything would be fine. Uh, that's not, there's, there's no even nod toward that here. So it seems obvious what the exceptional circumstances are. Yes. Everybody going to make a whole lot of money. Yeah. Well, to me, it's just kind of amazing that the UFC even has, or that USADA would even allow for the UFC to decide when to 
when the, except, the exceptional circumstances have occurred. You would think that if USADA were going to carve out an exemption like that into its own rules, it would want to be the one who decides, okay, these are exceptional circumstances. Like you're, if you give the UFC, and I think we've seen this before in the past, an opportunity to not follow its own rules when it's convenient for it, then it will take that opportunity. And that seems bizarre to me that USADA would allow that. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, we should point out before we go any further, this doesn't mean Brock Lesnar won't be drug tested at all before he f- climbs in the cage and fights Mark Hunt. We're led to believe that now that he has officially signed his UFC contract, he will be, quote, subject to all the anti-doping rules and has been, quote, formally educated by USADA on the policy procedures and expectations. So and reportedly has been tested. Already. Yeah, and reportedly has already been tested. So they will get, what, four or five weeks of drug testing in uh, for Brock Lesnar before he gets in the cage with Mark Hunt. Uh, but I mean, you know, that four and five weeks would dovetail with, you know, in theory, what guys used to do during the testosterone replacement therapy era, where in theory, they would get jacked up on testosterone during their training camps and then taper off toward the fight. So they would not fail their, their, uh, pre-fight medical exams. Also, one wonders if that lead time gives you enough time to get the drug test results back before the fight. Interesting. Interesting idea. I had not considered that. I mean, it's, it depends, you know, they'll tell you different stuff on how soon you can get them back, but, you know, it would not be the first time that it's taken more than a month after the test for us to, to find out whether somebody passed or failed. So, you know, that all is a concern. And, you know, I think a lot of people just feel like, hey, shut up about this. It's super exciting. Brock Lesnar is going to fight at UFC 200. And I get that because I also feel that way. But I don't think we should totally ignore this, especially because Mark Hunt doesn't sound like he's too happy about it. And he's the dude who stands to get punched in the head by Brock Lesnar. Here's the uh, direct quote from Mark Hunt, which he he gave an interview to Fox Sports UFC Fight Week. And he said, I think it's rubbish. I don't think anyone should be exempt from testing. If they're testing, if they're trying to clean the sport up, this is a bad way to do it. I think he's juiced to the gills and I still think I'm going to knock him out. So... Mark Hunt being totally Mark Hunt about it. Being totally a professional MMA fighter about it, frankly, where you air your grievance and then at the end you say it doesn't matter because I am going to knock this person out anyway. Well, and also let's point out that it is not it's not less concerning that Brock Lesnar is coming straight from the world of professional wrestling. Where he has, at least in theory, been subject to the wellness policy, yeah. but at the same time... A lot of dudes looking pretty well on the uh, WWE roster. <laughs> a lot roster. of people are looking very well, and Brock Lesnar, he was never a full-time employee with the WWE. He always had kind of a light travel schedule with them during this the return stint with WWE, so it's impossible to know like how vigilant they were at flying out there to, to Alexandria, Minnesota, or wherever he lives at this point, and, and uh, testing him. Yeah. So who knows, man? Who knows? Well, uh, also, I mean, maybe before we move on from this topic, the last thing is it would probably seem less uh, like glaring had UFC President Dana White not just held up this whole four month rule as like something he waved at Conor McGregor when McGregor was tweeting that he was retired. Remember that? Right. And it was going to have to take him four months if he came yeah, back. And that was, you know, one of the first things he said was, hey, if he's retired, he's got to tell USADA and then it's got to be four months before he can come back. So he should really make sure he's thinking about the consequences of his actions and everything. No mention in that conversation. Like, or we could just decide that it's, you know, there's money in it for us and we'll just waive that rule anyway. Uh, so, yeah, in, uh, interesting stuff. And, 
you know, since the UFC had this provision written into the rules with USADA, they're technically not in violation of any of their own rules. They're just granting Brock Lesnar this so-called waiver that says that he doesn't have to have this four-month waiting period. Uh, but I feel like the the overall idea of this is troubling. Like when uh, the UFC announced its partnership with USADA for, you know, to, to run its enhanced drug testing program, that partnership alone gave the whole thing like the whiff of legitimacy. And, right. you know, all of those people and entities were roundly cheered at the time. And we thought, glory be, perhaps we have reached the holy grail here. Maybe we're going to have something that resembles quality independent drug testing in mixed martial arts. And to have to find out now in kind of a roundabout way that the UFC has at least this provision written into its relationship with USADA where it can decide to suspend the rules when it's convenient. And I'm, and I mean, as we said during this round, suspend it because it wants to make it more money than it would if it just made Brock Lesnar fight at UFC 204 or whatever. Uh, it's hard to be quite as excited about the UFC drug testing policy overall, knowing that, that this thing alone exists. Yeah. Uh, as for the actual, the fight itself and the opponent selection, First of all, let me say that I am extremely pleased that Mark Hunt is the dude who got the nod here. And the more I think about it, the more it seems like that is there could not be somebody more perfect because his ability to do the thing that Brock Lesnar hates, just punch somebody really hard in the face. But also because, you know, it's not like he was in, in line for a title shot or anything anytime soon. So you might, if you're going to have this one-off just for fun fight, Mark Hunt is the perfect dude to do it. However, wouldn't you love to know what other potential heavyweights names were thrown around? in the Zufa offices when we're looking at bringing Brock Lesnar back for a special one-night-only appearance. You think they were like, hmm, what's Gan McGee doing? Is he around? Could we get him? Yeah. Is Rico Rodriguez out there? <laughs> what's he doing on Dan July the Christison? 9th? Is Dan Christensen busy? He's really tall, right? I'm just saying there's got to be some really interesting conversations that happen around there. And I'm, I'm pretty pleased how it all turned out in the end because Brock Lesnar versus Mark Hunt, I mean, yeah, that's... I'm 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 canceling a wedding to turn up to that one. It'll be interesting, man. I'm sure we'll talk more about it as the fight gets a little bit closer. Um and you know, at the same time we have no idea what kind of Brock Lesnar is going to show up for this thing. We haven't seen him fight in the UFC since 2011. The end of his career there uh was not the most glorious affair, I guess you would say. Uh and it certainly appears as of right now, that he is going to approach this comeback in the same manner that he approached his career back in 2011 and do most of his training close to home in Minnesota with uh, Marty Morgan. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see which holes in his game he will be able to close with that approach and how things go against Mark Hunt uh, in July. We'll find out. As for right now, though, do you want to do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then sure. we'll move on to round number three. Ben, we just talked about this off air, and I can't believe you didn't see it. You missed the uh, Vine, the video that was out there this week of the dude fighting at one of those ever-present Russian MMA federations at 145 in the afternoon. Do a goddamn backflip guard pass. You did not see this? I must have missed this. Ben, folks, are you fucking kidding me? This is like right up your alley. This is some straight-up a jujitsu nerd shit with a standing moonsault thrown in. 
So what your are you fucking kidding me is to me. It's for not to having you. Seen it. Yeah, my are you my original are you fucking kidding me was just going to be about this dude's backflip guard pass where he fakes to one side and when then when the dude like shifts his attention to that side, this motherfucker does a backflip over the top of the guy and lands in side control on the other side of him. You know, are you fucking kidding me? What would have been a cool thing to do is for you to have pulled it up on your computer that you have right in front of you and showed it to me. Well, once I found out that you hadn't seen it, though, then I cooked up this other are you fucking kidding me idea, which is delicious. You have to agree. Okay. For the record, Chad Dunnett still has not offered to show me this awesome thing. Well, well we, we can watch it right after this. Okay. My are you fucking kidding me, Chad, do you know what country Brock Lesnar will supposedly be representing on his uh, Reebok fight gear when he walks out at UFC 200? Uh, I have heard Canada, Canada, Brock Lesnar, the dude who kind of famously complained about Canadian health care, almost costing him his life when he had a diverticulitis scare when he was uh, off in Canada hunting or something now has his primary residence in Canada and is going to rep Canada when he shows up at UFC 200. It's terrifying to think that Canada could turn Brock Lesnar, one of our most powerful weapons against us are you fucking kidding me canada you gonna go and steal brock lesnar you remember what he said about your health care do you remember that canada you're so proud of that and now you're gonna just you all is forgiven huh you just gotta get some of your enormous tax hands on brock lesnar's paycheck that's what's going on here i see you canada you fucking kidding me are you fucking kidding me that's gonna do it for round number two we're gonna watch this awesome guard pass and then we'll be right back for round number three Ben, the plot is pretty thick around this weekend's main event, which features Stephen Randall Thompson, a.k.a. the Wonder Man, taking on Rory Joseph McDonald, a.k.a. the Red King, a.k.a. R.J. McDonald. I just made that second one up. Okay. Uh, in a fight that is pretty interesting in terms of the stakes for both of them, Stephen Thompson's Wikipedia picture, by the way, looks like it was taken with Dana White's flip phone. It's just like blurry and taken from kind of a weird middle distance. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah. What is uh, that? Stephen Thompson has won what I believe the technical term is a farmer's grip of fights in a row in the UFC. It looks like six, uh, including his last one back in February where he did karate all over Johnny Hendricks. So this is an interesting fight from his point of view because he comes out there, potentially beats Rory McDonald. I think you've got a hard time making the case that the Wonder Man should not fight for the UFC title. And at the same time, on the other side of the cage, you got Rory McDonald, who's coming off his own loss to Robert Glenn Lawler at UFC 189 in an awesome fight. Uh, who Where he has, got his whole shit broke. He did, in fact, get his whole shit broke and seemed to love every second of it. Uh, and now has declared that, uh, or at least the last we heard from him had declared that contract renegotiations with the UFC had not gone that well and that he is down to fight for whoever will pay him the most money after this fight is over. So a lot at stake, I guess you could say, for both these guys. Yeah, and it is also, even if you just divorce the stakes outside the cage, just kind of an awesome pairing. Like, I don't, it's hard to see any way that Roy McDonald versus the Wonder Man does not turn into an awesome fight. 
kind of feels like this one snuck up on us while we were off looking at the, the guy with the crew cut going to come fight on UFC 200. And now here we are. It does. It does feel like it snuck up on us. Uh, and you're right. Like stylistically, this it seems like a fight that, that could be a real dandy, uh, going down there at the, at the TD place arena in Ottawa, Canada. The, the so you got to think ho- home turf sorta for Rory McDonald. Yeah. The thing that I really, I have no idea how it's going to play out and I'm really curious about is to see what Roy McDonald is like after having his whole shit broke and possibly his soul taken by Robert Glenn Lawler, your dude Bob Lawler. Because, man, as was referenced by that Grim Reaper question early on, that seems like the kind of fight that could really change a guy. And we haven't really seen him since then. That was not only just the tremendous damage he took in that fight, but... You know, to get that close, to get to that title fight, and then you you seem to be winning it, and Robbie Lawler just comes out late, fifth round Robbie Lawler, and wrecks you. Uh, if you came out and you weren't quite the same after that, I don't know if anybody could blame you. Yeah, that fight was just shy of a year ago, and you're right, we haven't seen Rory McDonald since then. Uh, we know that a lot of things changed uh, according to his mindset during that year that he's been outside the cage like we saw his interview on the MMA hour where he talked a lot about going through that grueling fight which was for the title and feeling like he had done a lot of favors for the company uh and then not winning it and and you know suffering what we imagine are trem- a tremendous physical toll and then kind of not feeling like you know those what he perceived as doing favors for the promoter had been paid back from him for him uh, and so we, you know, it, it seems like a good bet that some, you know, that we are not privy to all of the ins and outs of Rory McDonald's relationship with the UFC, but it certainly seemed like whatever happened has, uh, reminded him that this is a business and that now he has a very business minded attitude and, and it's time for him to get paid. We have also heard some things from Scott Coker that, that make it seem like Bellator is probably interested in Rory McDonald, which, God, why wouldn't they be? The yeah. kid's only 26 years old, would have the chance to maybe be the best fighter in all of Bellator, uh, depending on how he looks after coming back from getting his whole shit broke. Yeah. You could throw him in there against Andre Koroskov, and now you're having a oh, great God, time. not that guy. Have you seen that guy? He's huge. <laughs> well, I, I do think you, you're right, though, to point out that uh, it seemed like from Roy McDonald's telling of the events, you know, you go out there and you have that crazy fight with Robbie Lawler, which was a great fight. And then when you sit down to contract negotiations and what you hear from the UFC is, yeah, but you lost. And so here's what we think you're worth now. I won't blame anybody who would feel like, hey, you're, you're not valuing that the way you should be because that was an awesome fight that we both gave you. Robbie Lawler didn't do it by himself. They both put on that fight. Uh, and you know, I, I don't see how – for one thing, it, it always surprises me when I hear fighters have to go through this experience before they come around to the conclusion like, oh, this is a business and I should fight for whoever will pay me the most. Like that should have been your thinking all along was that you'll fight for whoever pays you the most. That's just how it goes. Uh, but you know, for him to come out of that experience and then to go into this fight with all of that, not only your first fight back from almost getting the title, from getting your whole shit broke by Robbie Lawler and – there's a lot on the line for you just as far as your value going forward. That's some heavy pressure on Roy McDonald for this. Yeah, fight. for sure. And I think that's one of the interesting things uh, that could affect how he will look in this fight. You got to, if he comes, if Rory McDonald's comes out and looks awesome in this fight and defeats the wonder man 
it's hard for me to believe that the UFC will let him walk away just because he would be uh, a young, still in his prime, potential Canadian star that you would, I would think, at least in my view, not want to cede to your biggest competition. I feel like that would be kind of a weird move. That would be kind of but a But maybe weird that's move. where we're at. Has it, has it felt to you as it has felt to me like the Wonder Man has kind of come out of nowhere? Like he's been in the UFC for a long time at this point uh, and had just had that uh, spinning hook kick knockout of Jake Ellenberger uh, back in July of 2015 uh, which was, which was awesome. Like you spin kick Jake Ellenberger, I believe on the forehead, kind of. And Jake Ellenberger, you could watch, you could physically watch Jake Ellenberger be like, whoa, uh, uh oh. And then he lost. <laughs> and then he comes out. And even though he did that, like, I feel like, I mean, maybe this is just me, but like, I didn't expect him to kind of go bananas all over Johnny Hendricks via first round TKO the way he did in February of this year. Uh, and so, and like the, the Wonder Man seems like an exciting up and coming star for the UFC. Like if he keeps winning and especially if he beats fucking Rory McDonald with his karate, uh, man, I think you got yourself a marketable guy on your hands. Yeah. Well, and I also think if you, the feeling that he came out of nowhere, I think a lot of that has to do with the, the way his quality of competition really kind of jumped up. And each time it jumped up, it seemed like people were thinking like, all right, well, the karate stuff was fun against people who didn't know how to stop it. But, you know, now you're fighting Jake Ellenberg or now you're fighting Johnny Hendricks and it's not going to go so well for you. And I think that maybe just because we had him, thought we had him pegged as, okay, here comes some point karate guy uh, going to come in here in his, in his crazy karate pants or whatever and, and try to do this stuff and it's not going to go well. Uh, and it kind of took us a while to realize like, oh no, wait, like this dude is legit. Like his, his one loss is a decision loss to Matt Brown. And a lot of these fights, I think they look different in retrospect, like the loss to Matt Brown or even the win over Robert Whitaker. Like when you look at where everybody is now, I think a lot of that stuff, uh, you, you can take a step back and realize we should have seen that the Wonder Man was awesome all along. Uh, the odds on this thing are really, really close. Stephen Thompson is going off at, it looks like, minus 115, minus 120 area. And uh, Rory McDonald is going off at minus 105, 115. So a veritable pick'em here uh, between Stephen Thompson and Rory McDonald in a fight that you're right. Feels like it snuck up on us. It feels like a little bit this whole card snuck up on us. Uh, and a fight, frankly, that I think on free TV this weekend deserves our attention. Uh, did you know that Donald Cerrone is fighting Patrick Cote at welterweight on this card? I did know that. Pretty crazy, man. It is pretty crazy. Just all of a sudden, out of the blue. All right, well, do you want to do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week? Uh, yeah, and as a matter of fact, you your little lead-in there dovetails nicely with my just saying stuff. Okay. That's because what I'm here to do, to tee you up. Looking at this card, looking at the, the UFC Fight Night 89 card, I'm just going to read off some names who are going to be competing on this card. Noted author Sean O'Connell. Okay. Uh, the Barn Cat, Tam Dam McCrory. Wow, now I'm just getting pumped over here. Uh, Excitement level just jumped from seven to eight. Noted Twitterer, uh, Elias Theodoro. 8.5. And who is Elias Theodoro fighting? He's fighting Smiling Sam Alvey. Jesus Christ. This thing's at 90%. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to overheat over here. <laughs> uh, I... 
am just saying, Chad. And also, I forgot to mention who I like to think of as the whisperer, Joanne Calderwood. Okay. Um, I'm just saying, this card makes a pretty strong case to be the the card with the most of the, the CME's guys and girls, potentially, on it. There's a lot of people on here who are, if not friends of the podcast, then at least we see them out there mm-hmm. and we like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. We acknowledge them. I'm just saying, if you like the CME podcast, I think you're going to like this particular fight card. And once again, reinforces how awesome it would have been for the UFC to roll out of 199 with Rockhold Bisping, get this one out of the way, and then you get into the UFC 200 fight week when they're going to do like 16 events that week with the lightweight title on the line, for God's sake, uh, even before you get to UFC 200. Well, Ben, this week, I guess I'm just saying uh, some inside baseball co-main event podcast factoids here this is co-main event podcast 209 what so i guess i'm just saying i'm not surprised motherfuckers or whatever other diaz tagline you want to put on this thing i am actually kind of surprised don't yeah me too like what are we even doing yeah wasting our lives 209 hours that you're never getting back when the grim reaper comes for you ben folks leans his long skeleton fingers over your bed You'll want those 209 hours back. I just hope that he comes soon. Well, when he does, don't be scared, homie. Just saying. saying. That's going to do it for the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. We'll be back next week to uh, break down all the stuff that happens at Wonderboy Thompson versus Rory McDonald uh, and start looking ahead to the month of July, uh, which is going to be pretty awesome in the world of mixed martial arts. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Olivier Aubon Mercier also on this part. Okay, yeah. I'm familiar with him. Yeah. It's a fun thing to say. Yeah, Mercier.